If you would, please turn with me to John chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 1 through 15. And the title of this message is, What It Takes to See Jesus. What it takes to really see Jesus and to know Him and to know His kingdom and see His kingdom. What it takes to see Jesus. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the privilege of preaching your word. And God, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would have your way, and that you would exalt us with our surprising Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for those of us who've been a Christian for a good while now, that you would fly under our, oh yeah, I know all that, radar. And that you would, just by your Holy Spirit, open us more deeply to the surprise of your love and your grace and the, the length and the depths to which you went to make us your sons and daughters. We who were your enemies, who are criminals against your love. And Father, I also pray that if anyone who hears this message does not yet trust Jesus, I pray, Father, we pray that you would please make today the day of their salvation, that you would make them born again, even this morning, through the power of your word and spirit, that you would give them faith in you, Lord Jesus Christ, for who you really are, our surprising Savior with the love that we've just begun to know. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you and ask you to do a great work through your word this morning that we would never be the same because of what your Holy Spirit does. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Amen? Amen. What we see from this story about this ruler of the Jews, this Pharisee named Nicodemus, and him coming to Jesus by night with his confident assessment of, I know who you are, we know who you are, and then Jesus' surprising response. What we see from this story is that the truth about Jesus is so surprising that it takes an entirely new kind of birth to know him and see his kingdom. Sometimes when uh, we've been a Christian for a while, we lose sight of the surprise of God's love. The surprise, really, of the cross. We, uh, we can get bored with that. And we need to be reminded over and over, we can forget that too. We can focus so much on our serving God and using our gifts and all those kinds of things that we, we rarely reflect on God's love for us and how amazing it is and how surprising it is and what it can do in our hearts and lives when we really taste and see that the Lord is good. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit will use His Word this morning to reopen your eyes or open your eyes more deeply to how surprising it is that Jesus is who He is and did what He did for you. That's my hope, and I hope the Lord will do that, and I trust that He will. Uh, We're going to look at three things from this passage the first, we're going to see Nicodemus's religious reasoning. Religious reasoning. The second thing we're going to look at is spiritual sight. Jesus tells him he needs spirit-given sight, spiritual sight, in order to really know who he is and to see his kingdom and to enter his kingdom. Spiritual sight. And the last thing is that we need the spiritual sight to see our surprising Savior our surprising Savior. And even as we prepare to go into this text and to look at it more deeply, I would just ask you, is your salvation still a surprise to you sometimes? Does it ever kind of like tickle you in the ribs or get up underneath you like, whoa, whoa! Does it ever surprise you like, oh man, I needed to hear that. Like, this is incredible. Is grace still amazing to you? At least sometimes, is it? Well, we're going to be reminded of how surprising our Savior really is and how our religious reasoning gets it wrong. So let's look at religious reasoning and Nicodemus's religious reasoning. Nicodemus gives Jesus his confident assessment of who he thinks he is. We know. I know this. So we're going to look at his religious reasoning behind his confident assessment. First, look at his confidence. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, what? Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And then he gives his reason. Here's the proof. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. He's got this confidence. He's coming with an assessment. He's coming with, like, we've done all this research, you know, Here's my PhD dissertation. I'm a religious leader. I know what I'm talking about. This is our conclusion. You're a teacher come from God. Now, 
In one sense, he wasn't wrong. Jesus really is a teacher. He says that he's a teacher. He came to teach us and to, and to preach. But we're going to see from Jesus' response that, that he gets it wrong in terms of emphasis and what it means to really know Jesus ultimately. And so uh, he also has this confidence because of the signs. Um, he is using uh, the, the, the miracles that Jesus did to lead him to this conclusion that he's a teacher who's come from God. And I believe that uh, John told this story in this place uh, to give us a real human example of the people that he had described in chapter 2, verses uh, 23 through 25. So I want to read that to you. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Okay? So this context is really important for us to understand what's actually happening in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Because of that context and the, and the language that John uses in telling the story, I believe that the point is that Nicodemus is one of those people that he's talking about that believe because of the signs, but he doesn't really get it. He doesn't quite get it. And Jesus knows what is in man, that is our sinfulness and our deceitfulness and our self-deceitfulness and even our religious reasoning, and he didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't depend ultimately on them for his vindication. And I, I believe this because if you look back at verse 1, notice how John puts it. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, right? The last verse, because he knew what was in man, and then he says, now there was a man of the Pharisees. Normally you just say, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, right? But he says, there was a man, obviously, only men could be Pharisees. There was no reason to say this, I believe, unless he was emphasizing this continuity of and here's an example of those people who believed in the signs, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to him. He didn't go, oh, good, I'm so glad you finally know who I am. Shoo! Hey, would you tell everyone who I am? Because I really need some publicity here, right? No, he, he's, he's this example of one of these people. And so here's his assessment. He says he's a teacher, right? Um, he's a teacher. Religious reasoning Religious people, and I would say in contrast from Christian faith and knowledge of Jesus, love to emphasize teaching. If you talk to someone who's not a Christian who still has some respect for the Bible, even though they may not have, they don't maybe understand what it's actually emphasizing, you know, will say things like, well, I don't believe that Jesus is the divine son of God, but I mean, I really think he was a really good teacher, right? Like, and all religions are kind of basically the same, like, don't murder people. Uh, don't cheat on your wife, you know, love your neighbor. Like, Jesus was a teacher, and he taught kind of the same things that everyone else taught, but in his own creative Jesus-y way, right? Um, he taught us how to live. He taught us about what to do, how to be a better person, right? That's religious reasoning. And then he says, you're a teacher who's come from God. Um, I would say religious people not only tend to only think they need a teacher, but they tend to associate power with being on God's side. Power with being on God's side. 
the Pharisees of that day had much power. They were in control. They were the religious rulers of Israel. You know, back in the Old Testament when Moses, uh, when God led Moses to to ask for judges for or for more for elders, the seventy elders. That's what the Sanhedrin was. It was the council of seventy elders, teachers, religious scholars. They were supposed to be the PhDs of the Bible, and that's why this conversation is actually surprising. <laughs> Jesus' reply will surprise Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus thought he he knew everything. Um, <clears throat> But we know that signs and wonders do not prove that a person is on God's side, right? How do we know that? Well, Jesus says that on the last day, there will be people who say, Lord, do we not cast out demons in your name and heal people in your name and do all this? And he's going to say, depart from me. I, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness, right? That just because someone can do miracles doesn't mean they know the Lord or they're on the Lord's side. In fact, Jesus warns his disciples that there will be false teachers and false Christs who are wonder-working people. He said they will work such signs and wonders that they would deceive even, like if possible, even the elect, even those that God chose to have mercy on and give faith in Jesus Christ. Even the people that can't go to hell, <laughs> he could almost, they could almost deceive them. Their signs and wonders are going to be so powerful and so misleading. And so Jesus is rejecting, we're going to see Jesus' response, but that, that religious reasoning doesn't necessarily get you to the true Jesus. So let's look at what Jesus says in response to Nicodemus's assessment. We're going to see that, in a sense, he's saying, you think you know me, but you don't. You think you know me, but you don't. Otherwise, his response about needing to be born again to even see the kingdom of God doesn't really make sense. You think you know me, but you don't. Um, if you were a freshman in college, having uh, done like your dual enrollment stuff, uh, none of you can relate to that, right? The dual enrollment stuff where you, you take college classes in high school and you get college credit for it even though you're still in high school. Um, well, let's say you walked into a 301 level class first day of school, freshman year of college. And you walk into the class and you're like, I'm so, you say to the professor, I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to be here. And your professor says, uh, you're not supposed to be here. You're like, what? He said, yeah, there's these things called prereqs. Now, I may be butchering the analogy here if you're in dual room, but just go with me for the sake of the There's this thing called 101 and 201, and yeah, your dual enrollment worked over here, but not for this class. No, there's a prereq. You haven't done 101 or 201, and, and you think you know enough to be in 301. That's kind of what's happening here. Again, Nicodemus says, we know who you are. Oh, we got it. We saw the signs. This is who you are. He's coming to, like, thinking Jesus is going to be awesome. That's great. Welcome to the club. You know, welcome. I'm gl so glad that you're supportive of me, you know. But no, Jesus' response is a little shocking and uh, let's look at what he says. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly. Now, when in the Greek, it's amen, amen. Truly, truly. Uh, normally, you don't say, truly, truly. Yes, mom, I took out the trash. Or, truly, truly. I'm going to be five minutes late coming home from work, right? 
you and Jesus would reserve such strong language for something that is an extra big deal. Every word that Jesus speak is, speaks is the word of God, but some things are more important than others. He doesn't say truly, truly in front of every sentence that he gives, right? So, what it, so we need to know that this is a big deal. It's like if you're kind of nodding off, when you hear truly, truly, like, oh, what, what? Truly, truly, what does he say? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, and that again is also reasonably understood in the original language to mean from above. It can, have, it can kind of have both meanings. But born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now I don't think Jesus is going, congratulations, you must have been born again because now you see the kingdom of God. Kind of like when Jesus said to Peter, you know, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood is not revealed Cannot, has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. He's, he's kind of commending him for his faith. Jesus doesn't do that here. He gives him this kind of surprising response. He's saying, you think you know me, but you don't. Um, he tells him that in order to see the kingdom of God, to know who Jesus really is, we are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to have spiritual sight of who Jesus is and what he came to do. He calls for spiritual sight, saying unless one is born again or born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus gives this shocking response that you need a completely new kind of birth to to know him and to see the kingdom. Let's look at how he talks about that, these two births. You need two births, you need both births to know Jesus. Jesus. Says, let's see what Nicodemus says. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says this, Truly, truly, again, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What is he saying here? He's saying we need two births. We need both births in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Your natural birth, your physical birth, but you need a spiritual birth in order to really know who Jesus is. And the implication is that Nicodemus hasn't gotten that yet. That he doesn't quite know the real Jesus yet and what he came to do as our surprising Savior. Look at the language. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Um, there, there are two kind of main things that this phrase could be talking about. One is that in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, there are these prophecies about God sprinkling clean water on his people, talking about cleansing their hearts and renewing their hearts. And he talks about, the, in the same way he talks about pouring his Spirit out on his people and like the valley of dry bones, that the Spirit made them alive. And so... Um, it's possible that this water and the Spirit is really just talking about the same thing, being born again of the Spirit. The Spirit is called the water, you know, the, the living waters, right? But I lean in the direction of it actually be talking about Spirit in general. In this particular uh, phrase, water and Spirit, there's not a the in front of Spirit. It's just water and Spirit. And so in the Greek, it's, it's water and spirit. And so he says, truly, truly, I say, unless one is born of water and spirit, 
He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives us a parallel right after that, I think, kind of reiterating what he just said, but from a little bit different angle. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit, that does have the the, is spirit. And so he's giving us these illustrations of the two births. And the first uh, verse that he talks about it, it's, if you can use this language about spirit, it's like the substances or the sources from which we've, we've been born. You know, when you're born physically, you're, you're in water, and that water breaks, and you come into this world, you are born of water, right? But just being born of water doesn't get you into the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying is just because you exist as a human being doesn't mean that you're automatically in the kingdom of God and that you know God. It doesn't mean that everyone has a relationship with God. He's saying something else has to happen in order for you to be saved, in order for you to truly know God. Even PhD religious leaders, right? You have to have something else supernatural happen to you. Something else has to happen over which you have absolutely no control and for which you can get absolutely no credit, right? God, the Holy Spirit, has to do something to you in order for you to repent and believe the gospel. He gets more explicit about it being the Holy Spirit when he says that, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man is someone who hasn't been born not only of the flesh, but of the spirit. The spiritual man, someone who is spiritual, doesn't mean they read their Bible all the time. It means they've been born of the Holy Spirit. They, are, they have been made a new creature in Christ. He says things like, the natural man cannot know the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. So Jesus teaches that we are absolutely, utterly dependent on having two births, not just one, in order for us to know him. So when you think about the language of, of, of birth, of the spirit, you know, again, I said, I think he's talking about just spirit in general, the first part, but then he does get very explicit to talk about being born again of the spirit. Um, he says, uh, verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And that's the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is fully God, equal with the Father and the Son, the person of the Holy Spirit. And so this shows us that this spiritual birth, to give us spiritual sight, is personal. It's not like electricity happens to you, getting struck by lightning or something. You're being born of a person who is the Holy Spirit. And let's think about how God describes our being born again using the image of birth. We know that the, the sort of theological language of what he's talking about here is something we call regeneration, that we were dead in our sins and he makes us alive in Christ to be given a new life in Christ, to be made alive in Christ. But he talks about it as being born again, born from above, having a second birth. What do we think about birth? Birth is intimate, right? To be born is to come from someone, either your mom or your birth mom. 
you are dwelling inside of another human being. You can't get closer than that, right? <laughs> like, you can get next to someone, or you can be dwelling inside them. That's, I don't know, pretty close, right? This, this intimate connection that's personal and beautiful to be born of someone else is this intimate relational language. And to, in case we were wondering, Jesus, I mean, Nicodemus takes it this way, right? That of, of being actually born. He says, can someone enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Um, what I want to show you from this being born of the Spirit, this born language, is that the Greek word can mean either to, uh, uh, the father's role or the mother's role. It can mean to beget as a father or to give birth as a mother. And what's interesting is that the Old Testament uses this kind of language. In Deuteronomy 32, 18, it says, You were unmindful of the rock that bore or fathered you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Now, we talked about this in Sunday school. What does this teach us about God, this birth imagery that God clearly gives in this context? What does that show us about God? Well, even though God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and He's not just pretending to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and He reveals Himself as He, right? He is God. Women were made equally in the image of God, and men are not more in the image of God than women are. We don't say Heavenly Father, Heavenly Mother, because that's not how God's revealed Himself. But I do think here, as well as in other parts of the passage of, of Scripture, God uses birth and motherhood language to talk about his relationship with his people, which, which is just a reminder that, you know, Mother's Day is coming up. You know, we talk about how fathers image God, but everything that's wonderful about really, really good mothers also points us to how amazing and tender and, and nourishing God is for us. And so God's using this, this language here, this birth language, this intimate language. But, um, Pastor Joel gave me a, a Tim Keller sermon to check out about this, and one of the things that was so helpful about that is that he reminded me of what birth is like. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a mom. I have not given birth, and God willing, I will never give birth to a child. Uh, I don't even want to think about that. Uh, I'd at least be on Oprah if I survived the process, right? But, uh, but... You know, I kind of forget when we think about modern medicine and all that stuff, but either way, what, what else besides, what else is birth, what else is true about birth besides it being personal and intimate? It involves blood and suffering, doesn't it? It's a bloody event involving great suffering, even with medicine, right? There is suffering, there's pain, there, it's a traumatic event that in order for us to live, to come into this world, we, someone else had to suffer for us greatly, to be broken and bleeding and full of pain and, and with great effort bringing us into life, right? You see where I might be going with this, <laughs> right? Suffering and blood. Well, the fact that Jesus talks about us being born again that connotation of blood and suffering going with birth, uh, our physical births, I believe can kind of help lead us and point us in the direction that Jesus is going here. 
Um, because the spiritual sight that we need, we need that one because we were dead in our sins, Ephesians tell us, tells us, and we need to be made alive. But in terms of what we think about and how we understand things, we need spiritual sight because the truth about Jesus is so surprising, right? It's so surprising. When Jesus, uh, when, when Peter talks about, uh, about Jesus and when Jesus tells the disciples on the road to Emmaus about who he is and his work and why he came here and all of that, there was a scandalous thing that he said, and by scandal means stumbling stone. It's like a rock in your path that you trip on when you're on a hike. It's something that people, you don't just walk smoothly through it. It's something that kind of jars you and, you, and you're thrown for a loop. And do you know what that was? Do you know what it was that was a shock? It's that the Christ, right, the son of David, Emmanuel, God with us, the promised divine son of God, would come to suffer, to suffer, to bleed, and to bear great pain in our place. That was a scandal, right? Going back to Peter's confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, who do people say that I am? Well, they say this. Who do you say that I am? Peter, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, blessed are you. Yes, you're right. And then he starts telling him about how he's going to go to the cross, and all of a sudden, Peter goes, wah he stumbles on the stumbling stone of who Jesus really is and what he came to do. When he starts talking about the cross, Jesus goes, far be it from you. No, no, no. No, that's not going to happen. Like, like he's going like, to hold him down and not let him go to the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. This is why I've come. He told his disciples multiple times that he, would be, that he would be killed, who he would be killed by, the religious leaders, and that he would rise again from the dead. He told them over and over, but they didn't get it. Because it's like, this, category, this is not the way their minds uh, uh, work right now. That this great promised one who would come deliver Israel and all these great glorious promises and make a new heavens and new earth, that he wouldn't just come and wipe out the enemies and just rule, baby. Just rule us and win for us, you know. That he came to win. No, in one sense, he came to lose. He came to be killed. Now, no one takes his life. He said, I lay it down that I may take it up again. But to his disciples, when Jesus was being marched away like this, why did they flee from him? Because... This was an absolute stumbling block to them. This was not what the Christ was, was to do. They had forgotten Isaiah 53, right? That talked about him um, bearing our iniquities and suffering in our place and things like that. At this point, people weren't thinking that way. And so it was an absolute scandal to them. It was like, not my Jesus. You know, people say that like, well, my God wouldn't do that, right? My God came to kick tail and take names. He didn't come to be a loser and get killed on the cross. Come on, right? But that's what we need spiritual sight to see is our, is our surprising Savior because He is a suffering Savior. And you're like, that sounds good, but where do you get that from the story? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll, I'll show you where I, where I got this, right? Look at verse 15. <clears throat> isn't it beautiful that, before I read that, isn't it beautiful that, you know, humanly speaking, Jesus could have just you, if he was trying to just be popular and make a name for himself uh, 
and just not go to the cross, he could have totally just used Nicodemus and been like, oh, cool, he's on my side. I'm so glad you're on my side. Uh, he says we, so maybe there's at least a few other Pharisees that are on my side. Great, I can use this. Okay, Nicodemus, what I want you to do is hold a Bible study at your house and then secretly tell everyone who I really am, right? No, he, he didn't do that. And when he responded to him and basically rebuked him and said, no, I tell you the truth, and unless you're born a second time from above, from God, and not just from the flesh, you can't see the kingdom of God. He didn't just leave him there, right? He preached the gospel to him. Wasn't that kind? <laughs> he doesn't just leave you with, oh, well, you need to be this. This needs to happen to you. If you're wondering this morning, have I been born again? Like, what does that mean? You know, you hear the phrase in our culture, born again, and it's like, oh, those are the crazy Christians, right? Some people think that. Like, oh, those born again people. Well, it just means that you've been, been given new life by the Spirit. Are you wondering this morning, have I been born again? You know, maybe you come to church and you relate with God in that, in that kind of moralistic sense of like, God helps me be a better person. Life is about being a good person. I need help being a good person. I'm good, but I'm not perfect, so I just need some help to be a better person. And so life is about being good because why? I don't know. It's good to be good, but why? What's the purpose? I don't know. It's just good to be good, right? If that's you, or if you're wondering about this, Jesus doesn't just say, nope, you're not in the kingdom yet, you know? Uh, nope, you got it wrong. You're wrong. Bye. Amen. Let's pray. See you next week. That's not what Jesus is doing for you by his spirit through his word this morning. He is preaching the gospel to Nicodemus and he is preaching the gospel to you. And let's look at how he uses an Old Testament story to do that very thing for all of us. Look at verse 15. Or 14 and 15. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. What is he talking about there? I'm not going to read the story to you, but I'm going to summarize it. In the book of Numbers, the Israelites, having been set free from their bondage and slavery in Egypt, were in the wilderness, traveling in the wilderness, and they were rebelling against God. They did that, believe it or not, not just once but maybe twice, just kidding, a lot of times, right? We confess our sins every week, all the time, hopefully every day, right, the Lord's Prayer. We confess our sins on a regular basis because we rebel against God on a regular basis, right? That Jesus knew what was in man, right? He knows that we still have rebellious remnants in our hearts. And so um, these people had rebelled against God in a very particular way, and so, as a judgment on the people, God sent poisonous snakes who bit the people and killed them. There are lots of people dying. You can look it up. You're like, does God do that? Sometimes he does, okay? He does. But what did, when Moses cried out for mercy, what did God tell Moses to do? He said that he would make, he would make a sculpture of a snake out of bronze. He would make a sculpture of a snake stick it on a pole and hold it up, lift it high in the air. You know, if you're an Israelite and you're all these people around you, you know, it's got to be high. It's got to be lifted up, right, to be able to see it. And here's the deal. Do you know how you would be cured from the venom? If you'd just gotten bit and you're like, uh, the ER is a little far for me, right? How am I going to live? Am I going to live or am I going to die? How would you get healed and delivered from the snake venom? 
He said, just look at it. Look at the snake. Just look at it. Whoever looked at it would be healed. Isn't that incredible? Whoever looked at it would be healed. That way of healing is, that is what Jesus is pointing us to. He said, the Son of Man, that's Him, had to be lifted up. Where was Jesus lifted up, right? On the cross. That whoever, what? Believes in Him may have everlasting life. Everlasting life. To know Jesus is to know the greatest love that could ever be known. A love that left heaven and became a servant, a poor homeless man on the earth to take our criminal record on himself and to bear the full weight of the wrath of God, the equivalent of eternal torment crammed into those hours on the cross in our place that we could be born again and have new life. To be adopted by God the Father, brought into the family of God, to know Him and to know His love forever and ever, and that He would come back and raise us from the dead. Jesus is saying, if you think I'm just a teacher, you don't know me. You haven't been born again yet. It takes a new birth. You're like, if I can't make myself born again, I'm kind of out of luck here, David, aren't I? Like, you're saying it's dependent on the Spirit, and I can't do that. What does the Spirit use? He uses the preaching of the gospel, among other things. He uses the preaching of the word. And so you're hearing about, you don't just need a teacher. You need someone to have suffered and died and risen again in your place for you to really know God, because God is love. And you, and, and you cannot know his love in that way apart from what Jesus did at the cross. And you, you cannot be forgiven justly by a just judge unless he fully punishes your sins. But Jesus is, is the Son of Man who came to be lifted up on the cross that you could look to him in his suffering in your place to know God's love and to be saved, and to see who he really is, and to enter his kingdom. So that's how you can know if you've been born again. What place does Jesus' suffering play in your daily life, in your weekly life, in your comfort? Where do you, does the suffering of Jesus in your place on the cross seem like a weird idea and totally unnecessary because God wouldn't do something like that? God doesn't need to punish sin and all that old, weird religious stuff. He just forgives everyone and whatever. What place does the suffering of Jesus on the cross play in your hope and in your life and in your joy and in your knowing God's love for you? If it doesn't have a place, you're not yet born again. But the good news is that you've heard that He loves you and has gone to the cross for you. And then... Christians who still sin, how can we have hope? Well, what we were reminded of this morning as we heard that assurance of pardon, that Jesus, the Son of Man, was lifted up. He really did suffer completely in our, in our place. And so, you know, Ashley uh, this morning talked in our Sunday school class about preaching the gospel to yourself, that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves because there's a lot of not gospel being preached to us in our, from our own flesh, our own 
dark nature in our own mind and also from outside. You get a lot of not gospel. You get a lot, a lot of not God's love coming at you. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. Well, this is one way to do that. That as your sins haunt you and as you feel like God can't love you, you can cry out that the Savior suffered. The Savior suffered. He really did a good job. He suffered successfully. How do I know that He suffered successfully for me and for you? Because He cried out, It is finished. Right? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for reminding us of it. Father, we pray again that if anyone doesn't know You, that You would save them. And we pray that we would make better use of the surprise of your love through your suffering in our place. Lord Jesus, we worship you and we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're going to take up uh, an offering, and I'd like to pray for that offering. So if you would, please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for how you provide for us. We thank you for the privilege of using our time and our talents and our money to be a part of your advancing your kingdom. And so we pray, Father, that you would bless these offerings and that you would use them um, for people to come to know Jesus and to grow in their knowledge and experience of your great love for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to share a song. If you, It's the one that we did when Juliet was here in the evening. And if you all know the song, you're welcome to sing with us. But it's from the Psalms, and it talks about how we can never outrun God's love. So whether you come and you've been running from God, or whether you're here today and you just have had a really rough week, we know that we can never escape God's love, and we'll never see the end.